The word my disappears and it became ours right from the start. If we don't search out the answers, we'll never get the answers. You can learn a lot by listening to people. Hi there, and welcome to Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench. I'm your host for these bi-weekly podcasts, Erin Davis, and I'll introduce my co-host Lloyd in a moment. But first, let me give you just a Twitter-length idea of what it is we do here. Long before we started this podcast, the Green Bench began at Schlegel Village's retirement and long-term care homes as a place of sharing stories, a symbol of elder wisdom, where we get to sit alongside a senior, share a conversation, or give and offer advice to help return our elders to a place of reverence, up where they belong, to paraphrase a song. And now we do it virtually. Thank goodness. Our guest today is simply unforgettable for a lot of reasons. Henry Hank Floyd is 94 and lives at the village of Taunton Mills in Whitby. In his work life, he was boss many times over and held the title of company president. But more than that, he was a leader. And today, through this podcast, even now, a mentor. Just make note of his financial and leadership advice here for starters. But there's so much more, including a moment late in our conversation that almost left me speechless with its honesty. Joining me on the green bench, as always, and I'm so lucky, is my co-host Lloyd Hetherington, who, like Hank, is a Schlegel Village's resident, a dad and grandfather, widower, and retired leader and educator. I know you're excited about our guest today, Lloyd. you got to believe it. Okay. This is a pleasure for me to meet Hank for the first time. What I've heard about him just resonates with me so much. How do you sum up 94 years in the course of a 25-minute podcast? It's not easy, but we're going to try here, starting talking about Hank in senior management most of his career, a man who had humble beginnings from an education standpoint, went on to join the Navy at 17 and served the last two years of the Second World War with the Navy. He saved a company. He's here to share his stories with us on the Green Bench. So welcome, Hank. It's lovely to have you here. Glad to be here. I don't even know where to begin with you, quite honestly. I guess it makes sense to start at the beginning. Where were you born? England, Lancashire. England. Northern okay. England. Okay. Yeah. And when did you come to Canada? When I was 11 months old. <laughs> ah, okay. I had my first birthday in, in Canada, in Montreal. All right. Wow. And here you went on to get an education, but not a long one. Why didn't you finish grade nine? Well, I wasn't a good student. And uh, I always felt that I was below average in intelligence. And I think it was, in retrospect, I think I had a, a, a poor, uh, you know, I, my mind wandered. I didn't, mm -hmm. I, the two years in school, in grade four and grade seven, I did extremely well because I had a teacher in both cases, who took a personal interest and, and hit my hot button. and I, But, you know, I, did, I was lazy. I didn't do my homework. I didn't pay attention. And I was just not a good student. And I, I, was, I thought I was going to fail grade 9, and I didn't want to fail it, and I thought, oh, screw this. And so I talked my parents on letting me go to work. I quit school when I was, I was 15 in May. 
And I went to work on June, the, the first Friday in June. So I was just turned 15 when I went to, when I went to work. Between 15 and 17, what did you do? Well, my first job was as a messenger. The, the war was on, and I was a wharf messenger in Montreal on the waterfront, uh, delivering uh, by bicycle, delivering ships' blueprints and manifests and uh, stuff they were carrying. I delivered it to the uh, Board of Trade and the uh, Customs and Head Office, and uh, $30 a month. <laughs> mm. <laughs> And then when the, when the uh, September, October came and the, the river started to freeze over, the ships stopped coming to Montreal. So I got promoted from North Messenger to office boy in the head office. And, uh, and my, ink, my pay went up to $45 a month, which is not bad. And then uh, in April of the following year, this was 1941 when I took the job. In the April of the following year, my sister was a secretary with the Canadian Pacific Railway. And she said, you know, uh, they're looking for people, and you probably could do a lot better here. So I went up and interviewed, and I got a job as a junior clerk at $60 a month. So, mm. so I doubled my salary in the first year. <laughs> wow. And, and that really kind of set the tone for your life going forward, as I understand it. Whenever somebody said you needed more education, you got it. How much of that was on-the-job learning and how much of it was uh, extracurricular, like getting courses and that sort of thing as you went along, Hank? I was, when I was 17, as you, as you said, I joined the Navy, mm -hmm. and the railway, were, they were obliged to hire you back. They oh. were also obliged to give you any promotions that you might have had if you'd been still there. This was after the war. When I went back, the chief clerk said to me, look, you know, he told me this, and he said, you were a file clerk when you left, and the only promotion I can offer you is stenographer, and you don't have shorthand in typing. So all I can offer you is your old job back as a file clerk. So I said, well, how much does that pay? He said, $140 a month. I said, what does this stenographer make? He said, 165 That's a significant difference. So I went back to the, to the government and said, do I have any schooling coming to me? And they said I, I could go to a business college for six months and they would pay me 60 bucks a month and all my expenses. So I did a, an 18 month course in six months, crash course in shorthand and typing, and then went back as, as a stenographer and uh, became a secretary in, in a railway. Yeah. Was that usually a female position at that time or was it predominantly male, Hank? Predominantly female, except in the, in the operating department of the railroad, the secretaries travel with the boss. Like, I, I was secretary of the assistant to the general superintendent. He had his own private railway car in which to travel, and he took a wow. secretary with him. And so this is why they all had to be men. Ah. This guy I reported to had been the secretary to Sir Edward Beatty. It was, you know, it was a good road to promotion. Lots of, lots of exposure. Not to mention the fact you got to ride in the private rail car, the equivalent of a Learjet today. So uh, uh, you really got a taste of the finer life there, didn't you? Yep, yep, yep. I suspect he didn't waste any time while he was traveling that rail car. He was probably absorbing all the company uh, knowledge, all of the uh, things that would help him in his later career. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because the guy that I reported to with the head been Sir Edward, Sir Edward Beatty, secretary, I don't know whether you guys know who Sir Edward Beatty was, but he was the first president of the CPR. And uh, he was a real mentor. 
I was very active in the Anglican Church, and the curate, a guy called Walter Bacchus, I learned so much from him. They made me president of the youth group, and he taught me how to run a meeting and Bruno's rules of order. And it was an education, and uh, I was very lucky in my lifetime that uh, I had some good mentors. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. the other thing, when he came out of the Navy, there was, a, there was a college in Montreal called Sir George Williams College. And I started on a Bachelor of Commerce. They didn't have a business degree in those days. It was called a Bachelor of Commerce. Mm -hmm. And you needed 21 credits for a degree, and I got about six credits. I went for a couple, two or three years a night, a couple of nights a week. And then we moved to Jamaica, So, and I said I would take it up when I got back, but I never did. Hey, wait, 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 wait. Back up, back up one second. You moved to Jamaica? Can yeah. we have some nice, warm Jamaican thoughts for a moment, Hank? How did that come to be? Well, the railway reminded me like the government. It was very bureaucratic, and, uh, you know, you, you waited your turn, and I just didn't feel that the, the, the scope was there for any kind of advancement. And I picked up the Gazette one morning, and there was an ad, not in the career section, but in the business section, and it said, uh, uh, Man Friday, to be the assistant, like an administrative assistant to the project manager. And it turned out to be the Aluminum Company of Canada. In the meantime, I was married, and Dorothy was uh, four or five months pregnant. And I phoned her and told her about it and said, do you think I should apply? She said, go ahead, they're not going to hire you because they're not going <laughs> to hire a guy with a pregnant wife. And she was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. It was it was a, an 18-month contract. And uh, my family all said I was nuts to leave the railway because, you know, railway was security, like working for the government. But anyway, yeah, it, it worked out very well. Thank God for my dad. My dad was a machinist with about probably a grade six education, but he taught me so much. My parents, they weren't racist at all. They, he said to me, you always treat a person as you find him. You know, don't judge people on their religion or their color or their background or their nationality and all kinds of little bits of wisdom like that. And uh, you don't have to be brilliant to be wise. One of the things that I love about your story, Hank, is all of the times that you changed careers. My own dad, who's now 87, I remember when I was young, in my teens, he said, find a good rut, get comfortable in it, you're in it a long time. And he's since changed his mind because he left the armed forces, became a commercial pilot, went on to all kinds of other things. But that was a lot of the mindset at that time, like your friends who told you not to leave the railway. And yet here you were. What was it like at home? Now, your wife said, go ahead and apply. You won't get it. And you got it. But what kind of support did you need at home in order to pursue all of these different avenues in your life? The beauty of it was that Dorothy was, she was happy to be, a, like after, after uh, the first baby was born, she never went, worked outside the home. You know, and work, running a house with four kids is a full-time job. And she was very happy to do that, and she found it very fulfilling. So that left me free to work, you know, 60 hours a bloody week and work overtime and work weekends. And, and uh, she was home, and if I had to travel out to Vancouver or travel here or there, she was minding the store. It was a good arrangement. You know, we were, it was, a lot of it is luck. And time management. You've spoken about how time management is key 
to a successful career. And here we were 20 years ago when the Internet started to enter, encroach upon our lives. We were told, oh, this is going to be great. You're going to have so much free time. And yet now in the 21st century, we're all so tethered to our jobs that if the boss emails us at 8 p.m. on a Friday and we don't answer, we feel like we're shirking our duties. Can you get your head around that, about where we are now as compared to the principles that guided you in your career, Hank? I've said so often, I'm glad I lived when I did. I don't envy people today. The computer is a blessing, but it's also a curse. I don't know how I would cope. I wanted to say something else. You mentioned about working in a job for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, and I believe this, when you take on a new job, it takes you a year to learn it, to become fully comfortable in the job. And you can maintain that comfort level for another year or two. And then you start to decline. You know, you, you, you either go forward or you go backwards. And you can maintain your efficiency for about two more years. So at the end of three years, you know, it's time to move on. It's time for a new challenge. It's time for something else to do. You bring up a good point there. You need the new challenges, but sometimes within that job framework, you can create a whole new environment, a whole new work ethos. And I think you did that when you saved the company, did you not? Yeah, probably. There was about $65,000 worth of inventory in the, in the warehouse that wasn't there. And there was sixty dollars to $70,000 worth of bad debts that we were never, ever going to collect if we lived to be a thousand. And, uh, you know, and every day there was a new little thing. So it was just a matter of tackling, you know, the way you eat, the way you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And, and the other thing is to take the, take the employees into your confidence, you know, that, uh, and I did that. And I laid this out and I had three breakfast meetings and told them what I was doing. And, and I think that's half the battle. People, why can't you tell the employees what the hell's going on? And it changed the attitude. They all got on the team, and uh, and that helped me turn it around. Incredible. Yeah, that that is really ideal management. Communication, communication, communication. What you keep a secret then becomes gossip. People talk about things whether they have the facts or not. So get there first with the facts and get them on your side. Thank you. We're way ahead as far as management style is concerned. Well, the other thing I told them at the breakfast meeting, I said, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to turn this thing around, but to do it, I need your help. And they said, you know, I, I would like to think that I have a good reason for everything I do, but nobody's perfect, so the door is open. If there's a policy that you think is not good, come on in and tell me. And if you can convince me you've got a better idea, we'll use your idea, you know. It, it's just common sense. Yeah, putting the greater good before your pride. Mm-hmm. Lloyd mentions communicate, communicate, communicate. I think that Ronald Reagan got the moniker the great communicator, and for good reason, because he could get his message across and like nobody else, no other president. And it was Reagan who said that the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things, he is the one that gets the people to do the greatest things. Hank, I don't know if you've ever been compared to Ronald Reagan, but what do you think of those words? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense entirely. During my career, I've 
had positions of, quote, leadership, but I had surrounding me people far more capable than myself, and they're the ones that made me look good and feel good. So, yep, that's very yeah, true. That's very true. Yeah, su success comes from the team. Choose your team wisely and well, and things will go ahead far better than you ever anticipated. Yep. And when they don't go well, Lloyd, the important thing there is they will have your back and they'll be willing to go the extra mile to turn it around. That's what I've found, too. Very much so. That's when it's we are doing it. It's our, our task. They pitch in and they go the extra mile again and again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. What was, Hank, the greatest lesson that you ever learned in your life? Well, it's a personal thing, and I i was a branch manager in London, Ontario for years, and I attended a lecture one day, and this guy was talking, he had a, a spoofy thing called the Babylon Course in Financial Success. And the basis of the whole thing was, a part of what you earn is yours to keep. And if you, if you get a salary every month, you should pay yourself first before you pay anybody else. And the ideal amount at that time was 10% of your gross income, that you should take that off the top every month before you do anything else. I understand, I read something recently that it's now 12%. But you know, most people, you work your buns off all your life and you retire and you think, well, I'm not gonna need as much money now as I had before, which is, which is just not bloody well true. You need as much money. Like my wife and I, we were able to travel. Uh, we traveled half the world together. You know, we went to England for 10 trips and we, we, we did it because I took this guy's advice. And uh, he said, you know, start off, just get used to the idea. So I, at the end of the lecture, I went down to the bank and I opened an account with $20. And then I figured out I could, I could easily afford 2% of my income. And I, I would do that for three months and review it. And it took me two years, but I got up to 10%. And that was the greatest lesson. I, oh, the other thing is, don't buy anything if you can't afford it. Now, huh. you know, and, and you can't, like we had a mortgage on the house and I had to, I needed my car for business, so I had to borrow money for that. But if for a television set or something like that, forget it, or a holiday, if you can't afford it, you don't do it. And uh, so that was the greatest lesson I learned. The second greatest lesson probably was time management. When we talk about the wisdom of your life, and there are, of course, people who are not nonagenarians or even octogenarians listening to this today, there might even be some people who are much younger and are seeking to open those doors and maybe be lucky enough to have a manager leader like you. What was the most important thing you looked for in a job interview or a resume? Give us some tips that somebody looking for a job now might be able to put into action. Would you, Hank? The first thing they do is don't, don't, don't mail in a resume. You know, I, I learned years and years ago, if I was looking for a job and the guy said to me, well, send me a resume, I, I would say, well, look, why don't I bring it with me to, to the interview? And if he said, well, I want the resume first, forget it. You know, the, the, the odds are like one in a million that you're going to get a job from a damn resume. What, you, what you've got to do is you've got to get eyeball to eyeball with whoever's doing the hiring so that you can perform. 
And that even translates, of course, to the internet because it's so easy for your email to just end up in somebody's inbox and they're looking at the sheer numbers going, oh, please, and then it all goes to the big junk box. So that does translate well into 2021, indeed. When's the last time you bought a, a car from, from a picture? Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know, you yeah. want to see it. You want to see it. You want to smell it. You want to you want to be there. That's such an excellent analogy. You can put anything on paper. You can sell yourself short or you can pump yourself up. But when you sit eyeball to eyeball with the uh, personnel manager, that's when the sale really starts. That's when the rubber hits the road. That's exactly <laughs> right. And of course, it's not what you say in your job interview, but how you say it. Exactly. What? What were the interviews that really resonated with you that you can even remember, not the specifics if you don't want to, Hank, but that really still kind of stick in your mind as, boy, that person really had their game together, and I knew from the jump that that was the right person to hire? Well, I, I was lucky. I had several of those. And at the top of my head, I hired a guy called Peter Keene. Peter Keene. I was very excited because he was a young man. He was only 28. He had a master's degree in engineering, sharp as a bloody tack. And uh, he left the company, and he became president of another company later on. <laughs> that was my best interview, I think. Let's look at what has become such a norm in 2020, and nothing's been normal about 2020, but this is something that more people are doing. I mean, we're all talking to each other from our respective residences. What do you think about people working from home? Do you think that Hank Floyd could have had success working from home, or did you really, really, really need that face-to-face? -face? Could you do the Zoom meetings for your breakfast meetings? No, I, it, it, I would need to. I was hands-on. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I feel strongly about, like when I went into this company, you know, I was in the warehouse, I was on the loading dock, I was in the factory, and I would go to the branch. We had a branch in every Canadian city, and they were they were our contact with the customers. They're the, they're the infantry. They're they're the front line. So I would say to them, "What the hell are we doing in Toronto that we shouldn't be doing? That's making your life difficult." What are we not doing that we should be doing to make your life better? You can learn a lot by listening to people. Uh -huh. We only work five days a week, but very often we'd, we'd, we'd get behind in manufacturing, so we'd work Saturday to catch up. And I would pop in just to say hello and walk around and be, not, be right. seen. Right. You know, and this is important. That's called management by walking around, and you perfected it. <laughs> and you talk about the workforce as your infantry, and it takes me back to the two years that you served in the Second World War with the Navy. Did that time in such a formative time in your life at 17, when we think we know everything and we have the world to learn, did that time in the Navy shape in any way your managerial skills or who you became in the workforce, Hank? Never thought of it. To a kid of 17, it was a lark. I joined up because it was going to be an, a, a real experience. I was going to, and, and it was fun. Like, I, I, look, I don't look back on, on it as being a hero or anything like that. It was, it was just a hell of a good time. Uh, most enjoyable time and a fantastic memory. But Hank, I think you're the type of person that would find good and excitement in anything, in the difficult uh, job situations you entered in the Navy, you just, you seem to me to be an undying optimist. When the war ended, I was in St. Hyacinth, and because I joined up in 43, 
you know, typical government, they, they discharge us all according to our seniority. So my discharge is going to be a long way off. And they won't like to sit around and do anything. So every morning, you know, they sound the alarm and everybody jumps out of bed and you all line up on the parade square and you're sent off to work. And uh, a couple of days I was in scrubbing the floor in the gymnasium, which didn't appeal to me. One day on, on our way somewhere, I noticed this guy walking around picking up paper off the ground. So the next day, I went down to the carpenter shop and I got a broom, cut the head off it, and put a nail in the end of it and found a sack. And then I hid myself in the locker till the parade had all gone and everybody had been given their duty. And then I snuck out the back door and spent the day walking around putting paper into the sack. And I, I was there for three or four days, and that's how I spent my three or four days. You know, so you've got to you've got to take advantage. You got to you know you've got to you've got to see opportunities and seize them. Mm -hmm. How do you put that outlook on your life now at ninety four? How do you put that to work for you, Hank? Every day, can you share that with us? Well, you're not going to like my answer because I, you know, I I came to Taunton Mills because Dorothy had got dementia which brought us here and then she died. And uh, I, I miss her, something fierce. Mm -hmm. But I also, I, I just, I'm ready to die. I just figure, hey, some night I just like to go to sleep and not wake up and people say, oh, don't say that. Why not? You know, I've had a great life. It's, I got no regrets, wouldn't change a damn thing, but I'm tired and I'm ready to go. So uh, sorry about that. Well, don't be sorry. It's humbling to hear somebody be so very honest but all I'm doing here, sitting talking with you for this short time, is just thinking, what a gift you are. And I know that sounds corny, and you'll call me on it, because I think we've got that kind of openness now. But it's just that you make more sense at 94 than almost anybody I've spoken to at any age. And if that's ageism, I do apologize. But you've got all this wisdom, all this wit... Something tells me if you wanted to, you could swear like a sailor, and no wonder you were in the Navy for two years. You're allowed. But but it's mm -hmm. just, you are such a joy. I don't even know if you know what you've given us today by spending this time with us, Hank. Honestly. Oh, it's refreshing, isn't it? Really refreshing. And the, the spirit of it all, Hank, I, I just admire your openness. You're ready to go, but you're also ready to stay, and you're still fulfilling a task. You're touching the lives of people with inspiration, with guidance, with hope. You still have a task to do, Hank, so whether you go or stay, it's good. I hope, Hank, we get a chance to talk again because this has been such a pleasure. And can I leave the last word to you, Lloyd? Would you like that? I sure would. I don't get the last word very often, but <laughs> I, I, it's been a marvelous experience meeting you for the first time. There's so many ways in which I resonate with your story. You're putting aside the 10% of your income. Right from the day my wife and I married, we made a commitment that we set aside a specific amount. And one of the amounts we set aside every pay was payment to ourselves. And so I'm sitting fairly comfortably now in a re lovely retirement home because we faithfully, over the years, set aside small amounts. And it's amazing how they add up afterward. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. Hank, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. We could have chatted with Hank for hours, but our time here on the Green Bench has come to an end. For now, 
Lloyd and I are so looking forward to our next chat with the man who created Elder Wisdom and the Green Bench. Meet founder and chairman of the board of Schlegel Villages, Ron Schlegel. That's next time. Please subscribe for additional episodes every two weeks. You'll be notified as soon as they're up. And share your thoughts and opinions on social media using hashtag Elder Wisdom to help others find us on this green bench. Just take a moment to rate and review the Elder Wisdom podcast. And if it's easier, go to elderwisdom.ca to find the link. I'm Erin Davis from Lloyd and me. Thank you for sharing in these life stories. And we'll talk to you again soon. Your seat on the green bench is ready and waiting. Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench, is brought to you by Schlegel Villages, a complete continuum of care, offering independent living to long-term care, celebrating and honoring the wisdom of the elder. To learn more about us, please go to our website, schlegelvillages.com.